We are continuing in a series that follows along with the wonderful book by Amy Jill Levine, Entering the Passion of Jesus. And our goal throughout this series is to take a closer look at each of the days or major events in Holy Week, the last week of Christ's campaign to become king of all, the week that led up to the cross and then to the glorious resurrection. Last week we saw Palm Sunday and Christ's triumphal entry. And today we are picking it up with a a passage that is not quite as well known, but probably pretty close. Maybe the second best known event of Holy Week up until Christ's Last Supper and arrest. We call it the cleansing of the temple. And several of the Gospels give it to us right in the middle of Holy Week or right as Christ has entered into Jerusalem from from the triumphal entry. Today we heard from the Gospel of John, which comes a little bit earlier. Uh, John puts it a little bit earlier. uh, And yet all of them point to some of the same key themes. And today we want to talk about what it means for us to risk a righteous anger. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've seen the comic strip that became kind of the unofficial logo of the last year. It's a a picture of a, uh, a room that is engulfed in flames. And in the middle of that room is a little table with a chair beside it and a little dog in a bowler hat sipping a cup of coffee as the room burns around him. And since there is no way out through the flames, the dog sips a cup of coffee and the little thought bubble behind him says, this is fine. A lot of people in the temple that day were telling themselves, this is fine. And I've read the biblical accounts of Jesus clearing the temple more often than I can remember. But as I was reading, entering the passion to prepare for today's sermon, I found that Amy Jill Levine was pointing out something that should have been obvious to me in all the times that I've read it, but that I had never noticed in all that time. In the Gospel of Matthew, we are told that Jesus, as he cleared out the temple, said that it had become a den of thieves. And Amy Jill Levine's simple but obvious insight is that a den is not a place where thieves go to steal. It is where they go to live, to sleep to be comfortable. It's the place they go to reassure themselves that this is fine. And maybe you that, that's you this morning. Maybe you woke up feeling like in spite of everything, everything is fundamentally fine. Or maybe you're here this morning because nothing feels like it is fine. And that's what you come to church for is to feel like there is one place where it makes sense. One place where you can say, okay, this is fine. Maybe you came looking to be reassured. And maybe you got a little nervous when you looked at the bulletin. And you saw that the title for today's sermon was Risking Righteous Anger. Or maybe... You thought to yourself, finally. After all, this is every angry person's favorite Bible verse. This is the one they bring to me when they say, well, you know, Jesus, he wasn't all nice. He turned over some tables. Look, I get that. 
I know that feeling all too well. I had been in rooms where I wanted to flip tables. I had been in rooms where there were no tables and I wanted to move to a room that had tables just so I could start flipping them over. But this morning, no matter how you come to Jesus, all stirred up about something or maybe looking to be less so, the prayer is the same and my prayer is that we will all walk away changed. To that end, I hope this morning that we can all understand three things from this moment in Jesus's campaign to be the Lord of all. Why was Jesus so angry? And what made his anger righteous? And what might it mean for us to risk righteous anger ourselves? Let's get first things first. Why was Jesus so angry? And to do that, let's first begin by saying what he was not angry about. I'll be drawing for this portion quite a bit on Amy Jill Levine's book. And if you aren't yet a part of a small group that is reading it or reading it as a part of your devotionals, I encourage you to because it is so very good and it's so very thorough on this particular point. It is very clear that Jesus was not angry about the existence of the temple itself. Jesus was not anti-temple. In fact, we have it from the book of Acts. That after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, Peter and John, the leaders of the early church, went to the temple every morning. The disciples of Jesus continued to go to the temple. So it wasn't the temple that bothered Jesus. And Amy Jill Levine makes a compelling case that Jesus was not particularly bothered by the business transactions in the temple. It was not simply that it looked kind of low class or a little bit crass to be changing money in the temple. It wasn't even that the money changers were doing bad things in a way that was very appropriate to the time. The money changers were actually treat, trying to keep the temple ritually pure. None of the gospels suggest or ever say that the money changers were cheating people or that the sacrifice sellers were charging too high a price. Again, if anything, they were trying to help keep the temple pure because you see the reason that the temple had to change money was because people wanted to obey God. Roman coins had pictures of the Roman emperors on them. They had graven images. They violated the second commandment. And not only did they have those, but oftentimes around the circumference of the coin would be written that the Roman emperor was Lord and God. And so to get along in everyday life, you had to carry around these little idols in your pocket. But no one wanted to give an idol as their offering to God. And so there came this practice of money changing where the temple had its own coin. And no matter where you had come from, you could exchange these coins that had the graven image on them and receive a coin that could be used to purchase your offering, to make a fit offering to God. The people wanted to honor the one true God. So money changing wasn't the problem. They were trying to keep the temple pure. And sacrificing animals and selling those sacrificial animals wasn't the problem either. The animal selling too was an attempt to be to make it possible for people to honor God without putting too much burden upon the poor of the pilgrims. 
You see, the biblical law said that the only offering that was appropriate, the only sacrifice that was appropriate was a cosmetically perfect animal, one that had no birthmark or blemish or wound anywhere on its body. And the people wanted to offer God their very best. But an everyday laborer did not keep a flock of doves to be offered as a ritual sacrifice. And if they did have a flock of sheep, they'd be lucky if one of them was good enough to be a temple-worthy offering. And can you imagine how you would worry if you had to walk over a hundred miles from Galilee to Jerusalem, up and down the mountains, through the valleys, across the treacherous paths, all the whole time worried that you might find that your one acceptable sacrifice had been injured as it stumbled on the path or that it had wandered off, it would have been economic ruin as well as a deep sense of shame. So it was cheaper and safer for people to make the trip without an animal and then to buy a perfect sacrificial lamb than it was to risk with one and risk injuring it. They wanted to offer God their best. So Jesus was not angry at the temple's existence, nor was he angry with the sellers or the money changers. And the problem with the sacrifices in the temple was not that they were too expensive. The problem is that they were too cheap. The sellers were not asking too much. The worshipers were offering too little. Because God wants more than our gestures. God wants our hearts, the entirety of who we are. The temple had become a place where people bought respectability and a clear conscience before walking back through the temple gates and living their lives just the way they had before they ever entered in to worship. Matthew tells us that Jesus quoted the prophet Jeremiah as he was driving people out of the temple. But we only get the last portion of the quote in the gospel. The full sentence from Jeremiah 7 reads like this. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery? Will you swear falsely and make offerings to Baal? Will you go after other gods you have not known and then come stand before me in my house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe? only to go on doing all these things? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. The temple was not the place where money changers and merchants were stealing. It was the place where thieves made themselves at home and called it worship. It was where folks went to try and buy off God. So that's what sparked Jesus' anger. But what made that anger righteous? Because I don't know if you have noticed, but it can be tricky to tell the difference between righteous anger on the one hand and rage on the other. They can look a lot alike. If you don't pay attention, you might mistake the huffing and the puffing of the cable news anchor for the true and holy passion. 
If we look at Jesus' own anger at the temple, we can see certain details that make all the difference, and we can learn to treasure what is true and throw away everything that is shiny fool's gold. And first off, we see that righteous anger begins in hope. Even as Jesus was flipping the tables, he was full of hope. John's account that we read this morning ends with him promising a day of resurrection. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that after clearing the temple, Jesus started to heal the blind and the lame in the exact same place he had just been flipping tables. He was showing people the kind of transformation that the temple had been made for. He was showing them the kind of relationship that God always wanted. The one that God had been working for since the beginning of time. The relationship that we will know when the kingdom comes in full. He showed the people in the temple everything that they had given up on. Jesus wanted more for the people than they wanted for themselves. He had hope. And righteous anger is what it looks like when hope gets a little impatient. Jesus wanted then what he wants now. He wants to give us transformation instead of a transaction. Jesus doesn't mind the person who makes their living selling a couple doves or a bit of weed at a fair price. But Jesus wants to turn the tables on anyone who thinks that a sacrifice is the end of what they owe God. Rather than the beginning. Hear that again and let it sink into your very soul. Jesus wants to turn the tables on anyone. Who thinks a sacrifice is is the end of their covenant with God rather than the beginning. Jesus' anger began in that hope that there might be more to know and experience of God after the sacrifice had been made. Folks were walking away from the sacrifice and saying, I did my part. And Jesus was saying, no, you said just the beginning. So if you are trying to figure out whether your own anger is righteous and not just self-righteous, the first thing you should ask is, well, what am I hoping for? I think a lot of our anger is born not out of hope, but out of fear. We are not impatient for the kingdom of God. We are not burning because we want to see it happen now. We are feeling insecure in our own little kingdoms. We're not worried that we won't see the kingdom coming. We are worried about what we might lose. We are worried about where we'll be invited or who will listen to us. We are worried that we might lose status. We are worried that someone might forget about us and leave us out. Or we are worried that the world we once knew will be lost and forgotten. And we are afraid. And we'd rather be seen as strong than as weak. So we turn that fear into anger that isn't focused entirely on what we might lose. And in the process, what we lose is hope. We lose the hope that should come from knowing that Christ has already won everything. 
We should we lose the hope that should come from knowing that nothing good is ever truly lost to an eternal God who stores up all good things as treasures in heaven. Nothing can be lost that is truly good. We forget that God remembers every promise and could never forget us. A righteous anger begins in hope and holds on to hope. And it reminds others of what they should hope for. But an unrighteous anger gradually forgets everything except its grudges and its enemies. And on that note, there are two more marks of a righteous anger that we see here that I will touch on much more briefly. Righteous anger is usually directed inward rather than at enemies. That doesn't mean that righteous anger is about hating yourself, but it does mean that oftentimes righteous anger is directed at one's own tribe and asks more of us than it does of others. I want to say a bit about this anger that's directed at our own tribe. I think it was the great sage philosopher Albus Dumbledore from the Harry Potter books who said, it takes a great deal of courage to stand up to one's enemies, but a good deal more to stand up to one's friends. And last week, we saw how Jesus confronted the enemy. We saw how Jesus confronted the power of Pontius Pilate and of Rome. When he confronted the empire, he did it with singing and a donkey and a parade with laughter and with joy as if to say to Rome, do you see what you're missing? But when he confronted his own people, those who had been waiting for a Messiah all along, Jesus flipped tables and chairs. He did not disavow the people. He did not reject the people, but he did call them to account. And he was willing to let them call him disloyal. If that's what it took to call them back to hope. And not only did Jesus direct his anger at his own people, at himself, at the the, the people to whom he belonged, not only did he direct it inward, but he also gave everything. That's not typically the way anger works in the world. The unrighteous anger of the world demands that someone else give something up for our satisfaction. But by the end of this week, Jesus would give his life. You know, when Jesus saw how the people had made a mockery of the sacrificial system, how they would make their sacrifices and then walk away unchanged. Jesus could have demanded more. He could have demanded that they make bigger sacrifices, better sacrifices, more perfect sacrifices. He said, I want you to really prove to me that you mean what you say. I want to know that you've really changed. But instead, Jesus made himself the ultimate sacrifice. And I mean that in every sense of the word ultimate. Ultimate can mean greatest or highest, and there is certainly no higher or more holy sacrifice possible than Christ's own body, which he gave for us. But ultimate can also mean last or final. And Jesus made the final sacrifice too. 
Years later, the author of the book of Hebrews would put it this way in our scriptures. And by God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered all, when Christ, as our priest, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus was so angered by the cheapness of the sacrifices that he offered the most precious sacrifice and said to us, don't worry about it anymore. Let's just get over the sacrifice part. I've paid the bill. So now we can get back to what was always supposed to start with the sacrifice the new transformed relationship. After Jesus was raised from the dead, the scriptures are pretty clear that they continued to go to the temple, but they stopped offering sacrifices because Christ had done it all. So now I wonder what it would mean for you to risk your righteous anger Because if Jesus can get angry, if the lamb carrying, sin-forgiven, child-welcoming, other-cheek-turning, sinless and sin-forgiving champion of the world, if that guy can get angry, then maybe we're allowed to, too. Maybe anger is not simply a character flaw that we suppress in ourselves or silence in others. Maybe anger is a part of the image of God that we carry. Maybe anger is part of being human. And I believe that in this moment in the temple, we see the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus both on full display. And we see what it means to redeem our anger. Because after all, wouldn't it be strange if we came here week after week and we talked together about what the kingdom of heaven is like And if Sunday after Sunday, we saw signs of the kingdom and then we walked out into the world with all its pain and its hurt and we just said, this is fine. This is fine. Says there's no reason to bother. No need to be upset. Nothing that needs changing. And if this is fine, then nothing needs to be redeemed and Christ died for nothing. But if we are truly passionate about the kingdom of God, if our hearts burn with God's own purpose, then we won't be able to help getting a little impatient, waiting to see that kingdom show up around us. That doesn't mean we have to give up hope. You can believe, as I do, that all will be well without saying or pretending that this is fine. So today, if you have a holy passion that you have kept quiet, today might be the day to make it known. To remind us that we were made for something better. And to be a little impatient until you see the kingdom of God in full. And if you are looking for that passion, 
then you might find it in the place where everyone's acting like it's business as usual. You will know your righteous passion when you find within your heart a word that speaks hope and speaks it to your own tribe and that demands more of you than you perhaps were looking to give. And it's a risky thing to let your heart truly burn with God's passion. Because when the passions of God's heart become our own, when he teaches us how to burn with longing for what should be, for what God intended for the kingdom that God has initiated in Christ and that God is building, the very heat of God's passion will sometimes touch our own hearts and change them. And it might burn away some things we've been holding on to. It will remake us in God's image. But if we give ourselves for God, then nothing we give up is really a sacrifice, is it? Christ has made all the sacrifices. To give ourselves for God is simply to let his refining fire turn our hearts to gold. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.